Welcome to the Faces podcast. We're a Christian and Muslim charity working to build resilience in faith communities against child sexual exploitation and other forms of harm. We'll be talking about what faith and interfaith work means to us and how we embed an inclusive and authentic approach. Welcome to our podcast. Um, Today, um, Melissa and I will be heading up the podcast, but we've got a special guest, Courtney, with us. And Courtney has some experience of working with refugees and uh, our what we're looking at today is uh, sort of an update uh, on our story in November where we were looking uh, at what the Home Office was doing. We're now several months on from that and so it's worth looking at how things have developed. Uh, we've also got um, a little bit to look at on some of the local scene uh, or some of the um, difficulties around some of the housing of people and so we want to have a look at that as well Um, but um, you're very welcome to join us and uh, Courtney it's wonderful to have you with us and uh, you've been working and and I'm guessing your heart's engaged with working with refugees and things like that Um, and so it'd be wonderful to hear from you wonderful if you could introduce yourself a little bit to us and and also tell us a little bit about um, how you got involved in refugee work or what uh, caught you up in that. Um, and that would be wonderful to hear from you. So welcome. Thank you. And thanks for having me and for the invitation. Um, so, yeah, my name is Courtney. I have uh, been involved with migration and refugees for around two years now. Um, I say my interest, I've always had a strong interest in migration. And I think uh, particularly um, migration in this country and in Europe when it comes to refugees and asylum, because it's always been quite a politically charged um, and, and quite, you know, unequal in, in this country um, process. And it's it's kind of piqued my interest in that sense. Um, and that kind of drove my motivation to study a master's, which I've just completed. So I did a master's in humanitarianism, aid and conflict at SOAS. Um, that was very difficult, but really, really enriching. And I learned so much about the realities of this situation and the policies and and the, the whole structure of migration um here which was yeah really really eye-opening um and that kind of drove me to to know that that's the avenue that i want my career to go in um so while i was studying i was also volunteering with a refugee charity um a national one and then I've continued that work in Luton and also um, support some other local organisations as well. So we kind of provide advocacy, um, support, you know, practical support, a range of different services. And that's been um, kind of the biggest connection for me to see uh, the the realities of the people and the journey and the stories, you know, really putting a face and, and a person behind all of these statistics and, you know, um, kind of quick quotes that you hear on the media. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of been my motivation and a, a bit about the work that I've been yeah. doing so far. Uh, I, th- I think that's fantastic to have studied to that depth on it. You, you've probably seen the good, the bad and the ugly, um, not, not only in your studies, but also hearing stories from people as well. Uh, mm. What would you say is the biggest thing th- the last two years have shown you? What, what's the biggest thing you think you've learned or what's um, surprised you or something that stood out to you Um over that time because it's in-depth study I think that's fantastic yes. you, you know yeah. stuff <laughs> I do I do don't put me in pressure don't ask me you know specific statistics <laughs> and numbers but I do yeah I do know quite a bit now compared yeah. to before and I think that is actually one of the things that um has been the most kind of revealing and you know really um helped me 
understand the whole situation better is the fact that people, the general public don't actually have um, that much understanding and knowledge and the misconceptions, misinformation that is put out in the media and by the government. um, That was the most eye opening uh, kind of experience through my studies is to really question and critique and not not in terms of criticism but to question and investigate what you see what you hear um and and what you kind of uh, hear on the ground from the public so for me understanding now the fact that you know over 70% of um asylum claims are approved at the first stage and then after that at appeal over 50% are approved so the reality is that actually the large majority of people that do come here to claim asylum are accurately um refugees you know they are claiming asylum based on you know fair grounds that anyone should have the right to do but when you look at the media in various ways it's not just tabloids it's kind of all over um the uk that's not the perception that you receive and it's very much a rhetoric around threat and you know fear so that has been i'd say the most eye-opening um kind of situation i've I've seen i think that's that's very interesting so um i mean to hear those numbers (laughs) <laughs> that are sought to be genuine um as the people seeking asylum I, I i think that that's really powerful in in that um you know that's not the general view that's not how people see things but mm. i think in in some ways that is not an easy process that they go through no. So, so that's a stringent process that produces 70% getting through first time and 50% of those that re- reapply getting through. Yeah. Um, and that's not a that's not the British government going, oh, we won't even look at the paperwork. That's them drilling down, trying to find any excuse to say, is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly as you describe. It's not it's not an easy process. It's not people slipping through the net because of um, a lack of, you know, scrutiny and and investigation in their case. The process that people go through here um, during claiming asylum and when they get to their substantive interview. So just to give a quick overview of the process, they will arrive in the UK. They will be um, processed and screened and given a kind of first interview to find out the grounds that they're here on and then the the waiting game happens where they're waiting for their substantive interview and that's the decision making um interview so that process can can go on for a kind of an undisclosed amount of time there's no real guidance around how long people will wait i've supported people that have only waited a few months and some people are still waiting and it's been over 18 months since um they've had their screening interview um but that process is is more, I thought, in my opinion, like an interrogation rather than an interview to, you know, determine um, what their case is and what the situation is. And there, there's been, you know, people that have been rejected on discrepancies as small as, you know, something very traumatic that has happened to them. And they've reported, oh, maybe it was a Wednesday or, you know, in their screening interview. And when it gets to the substantive, they said Thursday. So, well, that's a discrepancy. So actually you're not being accurate. So actually your claim is denied. And that's really kind of simplifying that situation. But the the crux of the the denial was on something as trivial as a day or a date that was maybe one or two days out. Um, So, yeah, it's a a harsh process. And, you know, the interviews can last anything from a couple of hours to uh, some people have lasted days. Um, You know, the the, one of the shortest ones I've heard is about six hours, (laughs) which to anyone is is in you know it's intense it's a really really tough mentally you know to to process that so yeah it's not easy at all wow that sounds tougher than a police interview (laughs) (laughs) wow 
I'm so glad we've started here um, in talking about actually the people behind the statistics, as you put it, um, and the people and their stories. And just to recognise before we start talking about some of the the local reaction and response to um, some news stories that we're going to bring in, um, to to recognise that from the the statistics we're looking at, over 70% are given their status their asylum claim is approved and then a further 50% of the remaining are approved and this isn't people who are traveling um, through country to country or traveling to the UK um, just because you know these are people who are facing persecution um, for various different reasons who are fleeing war who are fleeing um, you know real harm so I think that's really important that to put that into context that when we talk about perhaps the um, the fear that people have of, you know, new people coming into your town. Um, it just, in my opinion, it really can't equate, it really can't compare to the actual um, experiences that people are claiming asylum for. Um, and, and actually that voice, that, that side of the argument should be louder, you know? Um, but yeah. I agree completely. And I think that... Um, that's part of this kind of educational side and information that should be shared publicly is understanding what characteristics um, the the refugee criteria entails because people have a perception, especially with what's happening with Ukraine right now, it's very, you know, overt and, and easy to see exactly why people are coming. You know, we we have very strong media coverage of that. But when people are coming from South Sudan or Eritrea, and that's really, you know, not reported at all in our media, um, the perception is, well, there's not war there, you know, so why are they coming? And, and people are easily, um, you know, easy to think that if they can't see it, the, the situation is not happening. And and people also feel that war is kind of one of the only um, reasons that people would have to flee uh, and seek um, asylum or, you know, become a refugee and have to leave their country. But there's so many more um, situations, you know, personal persecution, whether it's based on faith, gender, um, you know, ethnic groups, there's so much that kind of falls into the category of uh, what makes you um, in this country, you know, recognise that the refugee that without the public understanding it, it just fuels these kind of situations that I know that you want to kind of cover a little bit later yeah yeah no, th- thanks Courtney uh, just um I'm just trying to understand something and and, and it's probably a, a question from ignorance and and uh, you may not have the answer but but I'll ask it anyway um in 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 some ways what the home office is doing putting everyone in hotels mm-hmm. Is now I'm, I'm, have I got this right? So people arrive in the country, they go through an initial screening, and that has to happen within so many hours or so many days or something like that. And that's what the camps down in, um, you know, down near Dover and places like that were doing with yeah. the four thousand people, forty four thousand people in them, yeah. um, and and so on. And that's that initial screening, and then after that. They, they had to go somewhere else and the home office weren't managing to find enough places. And so that process, while they wait for that other interview happens, they, they just put in hotels all over the place. Is that what's hap- is happening or have I misunderstood it? No, no, I think it's, um, 
it's difficult to understand it. So um, the, the process isn't necessarily firm. Um, there's been a lot of movements and especially since COVID. So um, I believe, so I kind of got involved in this in depth around the COVID time. So I'm not 100% sure what happened prior to COVID. But yeah, since COVID, that's where the hotels, because they weren't being used, there was a lot more availability to use that. And that's where this kind of system come into play. Um so, yeah, the process of screening usually should happen within a certain amount of days um, and, and should be quite immediate. And then they are sent to accommodation, which is now very commonly hotels or, you know, we've got university accommodation being used now, kind of different. You know, Napier, the old barracks um, is being used. So there are different structures of accommodation, but in general, it's hotels um, across the UK. Um, however... At the moment, there seems to be a backlog with some people coming through and going straight into, so getting their, their basic processing, like their ID, um, their, their kind of paperwork completed at the receiving centre, and then they're being sent to accommodation and then being called back for screening. So there's that gap now where we're seeing people come through into the hotels that haven't even been screened yet and had their initial um, processing kind of interview. So there's no real rhyme or reason to this we we don't get any information you know from the charity perspective as to exactly why the home office is doing things we just often hear that there, oh, there's a backlog or you know it will happen so we've got people that have been waking waiting a few weeks now to be um processed which is obviously then going to delay their substantive interview so it just kind of has a knock-on effect but yeah in general that is the process um and when People have been in uh, hotel accommodation for some time, usually for families that have um, young children. They will then be um, kind of prioritised to be moved to something that the Home Office called dispersal accommodation, which is um, it could be an apartment or a house or a shared house. Um, something that's obviously a bit more suitable for people that have families and children that need, you know, routine and some stability around going to school and things like that. Um, and for people that have medical needs as well, they would be uh, prioritised for um a bit more suitable accommodation yeah so um <clears throat> sort of that that really is very helpful <laughs> it paints a much clearer picture of a messy situation that isn't clear but it 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 helps understanding of what's trying to be done and and i think this is what the public don't understand that they're not familiar with the process they're not hearing the process very clearly, even though it probably is on some news channels or it is in some settings. It, it doesn't seem to carry across. Um, so there's a situation here um, that came up in, in Dunstable and was widely publicized on the radio and so on. Um, there's a couple of hotels that we know have, have had um, people seeking asylum in them um, for, a, for a while. But recently, the main hotel in Dunstable, um, which has, um, you know, a four-star hotel, has wedding bookings, has people doing their 80th birthday there and all those kind of things, um, has been, uh, the, the owners have said, actually, we're going to put up people seeking asylum through the home office. We're going to take that contract. And they just cancelled all the bookings uh, then and there, right across the board. So all the people who had bookings got irate, got onto the radio, made as much noise as they possibly could, got onto the MP, got onto attacking local councillors and other local councillors who want to get voted in in May, got all involved in it all. And the, the whole thing's going up in a little bit of a, a, a noisy kind of football, but it's beginning to get some more settled um, look at it all. And my concern in it, uh, living locally near near the hotel um in in some ways was 
how are these how is this going to help these people when they're moving into a, a strange place <laughs> and kind of the way it's been approached has been so crass and on thought through that it stirs up local opinion it doesn't help those people be welcomed and so um my my concerns initially was this is really bad news for uh, social cohesion and it's it's really bad news for some of those those things but um, there's been a debate um that took place um i think it was earlier this week um with with councillors saying you know what is the town council going to do about this and some were saying they should ban hotels from doing this and those kind of approaches and they must honor, must keep their bars open, must must do all these things. And the other side said, Dunstable is on the A5. It's got a long history of welcoming people. <laughs> and actually, that needs to be the approach that's held to the fore, whether people have been here a week or been here 50 years or 60 years or whatever. Actually, there's a need to be welcoming and and care for all people and fortunately enough that was the one that was voted through by the council and that's the approach being taken by them but there's still public meetings to discuss the finer points of it all and and all of that's been stirred up and i know in in areas like luton as well there's been a high number um, of um, refugees for the area. I think it's over 20% of the East's um, people seeking a, asylum have been put into Luton and surround. So some of our Dunstable might be included in that. But 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 actually, that's a high proportion. And, and there seems to be very little thought in that about its impact locally and its impact on the people seeking asylum and their opinion of this new country they've just come into and and how people are towards them um you know when they've been through tough times it, it's it's very difficult to i've changed country a couple of times i know it's difficult when you do it well <laughs> when when you're having to do it on your last dregs of trying to get across uh, or get into a country it must be very difficult i don't know if if either of you have any thoughts on that maybe that's something we can discuss around the Dunstable situation maybe it's something that could help bring some elements in that are needed in the in the whole picture of things I think it's just really um, a, a real example of how much the well-being of the people that are being placed um, in accommodation and the quantities uh, that in that, that's how that's happening um, it just has a real disregard for their well-being um, and to be placed in areas which already face really high poverty levels. Um, there's, as you said, there seems to be no kind of sense in that. Um, you know, places that are already really stretched for resources, um, places that already have their services overwhelmed so that there's a backlog of accessing support services and, and all these kinds of things um, where there isn't much um, available, like places for people to be and, and just kind of, you know, be and, and do things that are productive or, or enjoyable um and you know so the question is sort of why why where is the sense in that and i think you know it's quite we might have a private conversation and be a bit more open but it's, it's quite obvious that you know they're being placed um where there is a certain demographic of people so there's perceivably a, an easier sense of cohesion um and they're being placed perhaps where there are so hotels and accommodation, which are really struggling to survive because of the poverty mm -hmm. um, in the area. So it's kind of exploiting that. 
it's exploiting the fact that these businesses need to um, have a viable option. Um, and if they are block booking, you know, a certain number of uh, residents for a certain amount of time, then that is kind of taken advantage of um, without any real regard to the cohesion aspect of things, to how much pressure it puts on the local community. And that is in terms of the resources, you know, all of the organising around how do we provide some sort of urgent um, support for um, the asylum seekers that that are placed in Luton, um, you know, all of that takes time and 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 resource and and energy um from all the local charities and things like that and so i don't think there's any real regard of that um and especially since as we know you know people can be up and moved out and relocated somewhere completely different at a moment's notice um you know it's it's first and foremost the effect on those individuals is is paramount but also the reality of all of the resources and all of the connections and community building that's happened in that location is now essentially gone to waste and has to be um, done all over again in that new location. Um, so it doesn't make a lot of sense and there's a lot of problems with it. Yeah, I agree. And I think you've raised some really kind of um, important points. And in my opinion, um, the financial element is absolutely a driver behind um, the locations that receive. So like you said, in areas that are already experiencing poverty and maybe the local authorities are, um, you know, low on funds and things like that, the the local businesses, I think, you know, similar to what the situation in Dunstable is, you know, I think that there's not enough kind of examination of the fact that the actual um, owners of this this hotel have taken that decision to accept the contract. It's not a case that the Home Office have forced them into it. They've offered a very lucrative deal and they've taken that opportunity. And I think that, you know, as a business owner, you know, you've got that decision to make. Yes, obviously to secure your income, but you are essentially in control of that. You know, you could explore other avenues and things like that. So I think that it's, I find it very frustrating that all of the flack kind of comes towards the people that are being moved into the hotel out of their choice. Um, and there's not much kind of, um, you know exploration or you know investigation into the the side of things where someone is accepting this contract someone is agreeing to these terms and and taking this money and I did read an article um, a few months ago that explained uh, hotels that have taken on these contracts have made six times more profit than they did before COVID so these contracts are lucrative they are attractive and that is what I think the home office has on their side that's allowing you know this kind of non-logical um you know just confusing system of where people are placed um i think the the impact in luton uh is you know i think luton is a very special place i think that there's not many places in the uk that has this level of community and actually support and really kind of interconnected um just a support system through charities, through communities, people, different diversity, uh, sorry, people from diverse backgrounds and things like that. So to come into Luton is not actually that difficult of a transition for people I've found in the past couple of years. People um, tend to be able to find, you know, a, a community of sorts, you know, that might speak their language, that is from their country, you know, shops that sell things from home um, for many different nationalities. So it's not one of the worst places for people to be placed. Um, however, the strain and the disproportionate allocation of people in this in this small town um, is what is challenging because things like schools, like GP, 
GPs, like all different services, um, are massively strained. And then that does impact public opinion. But luckily, and um, I, I mean, I would expect that there wouldn't be too much comeback similar to, you know, the situation in Dunstable. Well, in contrast to the situation in Dunstable, um, there hasn't been that much public kind of... Um, I'm trying to think of the opposite of cohesion, but anyway, there's yeah. not that that much um, public, you know, dis. I discord. Can't get yeah. There we go, discord um, around, you know, the fact that people are here. So, yeah, I think that the financial side of things is something that people should really, you know, put at the forefront of when you're trying to understand why this is happening, um, and. Yeah, and I think just one more thing to add to this experience of being placed in a hotel, something I see a lot in the public forum and, you know, on social media is, you know, people are coming here, they're getting put up in a four or five star hotel They're you know, everything's paid for. Um, the experience of living in a hotel for an undisclosed amount of time, often now in a shared occupancy room, because the home office are, um, you know, even in, in a hotel that is not meant to be shared occupancy, they're, they're putting bunk beds in, they're kind of redesigning the hotel to have a higher occupancy. Um, and, and this could be in a you know, shared room with people you don't know, people that don't speak your language, people that are traumatised. Everyone has experienced some sort of trauma um, and you have no privacy and things like that. Um, to have no kind of funds to be able to go out and leave and, you know, take um, journeys maybe into London or anywhere else to see other friends and families that you might be connected with. So you are kind of isolated to the area that you're staying has a really detrimental impact. And on top of that, the food that's provided, it's not like when we go to a hotel and you get your breakfast buffet and things like that there are um caterers that are contracted and one of the most common things that we hear is that the food is not culturally um you know adapted or sensitive um it's microwave meals or you know they, they come in plastic containers the quality is not good we've had reports and evidence of food um being given that's out of date um, we've had, you know, people have food poisoning and things like that. So there's really not much care that goes into the, the kind of catering side of things either. And if you have no funds to be able to, you know, or, or facilities to cook for yourself, it's just a really, really bad experience. It's not roses and it's not, you know, you're in a five-star hotel living in luxury. Yeah. I'll just, um, there was a, a meeting, a public meeting, um, to um, basically discuss all of this locally in Dunstable. And, and one of the answers coming from um, our, our local MP here uh, was that an allowance of £9.10 per week um, is provided to cover any essentials not provided by the Home Office. And um, and they've got a company running that. Um, you know, the accommodation provider comes, you know, um, <clears throat> provides those living in the hotels with a debit card where 910 is low uploaded on a weekly base <laughs> and you're thinking nine pounds ten uh, is that for toiletries that's for toiletries is that for all the different things you need that that's quite a tiny amount uh, yeah. to stretch out it's it's minuscule and it is it's provided by the home office so it's not the accommodation providers that do that it is actually um the kind of the government allowance for people that are seeking asylum and based in hotel accommodation um and it's for everything outside of you know food and accommodation if you need phone credit uh, to obviously be connected to your family, you need to use that £9.10 per week to do that. If you're having serious issues with the food, um, you know, we have tried to escalate and, and try and, you know, make a difference in the food that's offered in many hotels, but it really doesn't yield much response. Um, 
So if you're not eating the food that's in the hotels for many reasons, you know, you have to, you know, sustain yourself from that fine, uh, that funding. If you need clothing, if you need, um, you know, shoes, if you need to travel for a home office appointment, say, for example, you are required to go to Croydon at the processing centre for any reason, um, you must fund that out of your £9.10 per week. There is no allowance um, for that. There's no provision for things like that. So, um Yes, it's it's a tiny amount of money and it's only recently increased. It was eight pounds per week um, up until I think the past couple of months, maybe the beginning of this year, they've changed. Um, I think this is in line with the cost of living crisis. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's not a lot at all. <laughs> it's not. I wonder how they arrive at that amount. So I won't go into the detail, but but you you, you sort of think, wow, that's 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 tiny. Um, but you know, also that's all part of was it six million a day the government say they're spending, but that's been taken out of our overseas aid budget, and so there's nations overseas who could be getting help that aren't getting it because that's just been taken from that, and so so there's things like this money's been moved around and swapped around and like you say the following the money shows the, the story a little bit um in in this and and i think um you know i think this is fascinating you know just trying to think of what it what it's like to be in those settings living on that amount um i, I think you know that's that really brings the humanity of it really home doesn't it um you know when you're thinking nappies <laughs> you know uh, for families and caring for families and and it then also puts these people in a vulnerable position when it comes to exploitation and and you know and you've got reports in the press saying that people have just dis disappeared from places because uh organized criminal gangs have basically persuaded them that they'll be sent somewhere else and and all of this and managed to use clever language and manipulation as they do uh to get people on board and and whisked away um into human trafficking and horrendous things i imagine um is, is that something am i naive on that or is that something that um has been happening with people in need and difficulties yeah i think we do hear um a lot of reports and information for one of the charities that I support is a national charity. So in the Luton area, I haven't um, been made aware of many situations in terms of the organised, um, you know, criminal activity and people being kind of exploited in that sense. But I know that it happens um, and regionally. Yeah, exactly. As you describe um, is an issue. And I think something that is is a very easy um, way for people to kind of exploit and use like you said that clever language to be able to convince people that this is their only option um is the nationality um and borders bill the rwanda policy that they're trying to you know push forward and that really does um cause a lot of fear for people you know even the mention of rwanda now not even in any context you know i find that it really does stir up a lot of questions a lot of anxiety a lot of stress so if that is what the these you know organized groups are using to kind of attract and lure people into um looking at a way to avoid that uh it's yeah it's dangerous it's a really dangerous situation i'm a bit of a fan of of historical podcasts and there have been many schemes like this through the history <laughs> and none of them have worked. <laughs> so yeah. so I, th I think we won't go into all the politics of that, but, but I, th I think, I think there's, there's some of these things where those threats 
are really cruelly used by people and and people use things cruelly to get their own in sometimes and and i think it's building relationship connection that helps break down some of these uh vulnerabilities you know if people are less isolated they're more connected they're more part of something they've got a hope in the future in some ways those things help create a security um are there ways that that's being done in this i mean i know um i've heard of loads of churches locally here in dunstable that have people finding their way to the churches uh from the hotels and things like that and the churches have been wonderfully welcoming um you know helping them with clothing helping with different things like that um i know the same thing from chatting to melissa is happening in luton and uh, with many charities and churches and mosques and other organizations very involved um I, i don't know is is you know if either of you want to comment some more on that but i see that as a protection against exploitation i see that as as actually really pre- pre- helping some of the vulnerabilities in this and people make connection it definitely is trying to help build some resilience because when we have vulnerable people who are already extremely vulnerable from the circumstances they they're seeking um asylum for um and then they are moved from place to place so any community any connection that is being built potentially over sort of over a year we saw the stories of of people going to college and accessing medical support and things like that and then being shipped across the, across the country um all of that you know removes any sort of protective structures that they would have in terms of safeguarding having the um you know housing situation as it is having very limited resources outside of that all of that opens the door for exploitation and abuse um so yes yeah, so all this work that's being done in, you know on the basic level people opening their doors and saying you know you're welcome um, to be here is is so so important um, and that's why it, it's really important that where these uh, asylum seekers are placed is really uh, you know vital to their whole well-being um, and the whole um you know the the safeguarding aspect to in order to make sure that these people are actually safeguarded and aren't put at an even more unnecessary risk um all of these kind of factors need to be taken into account um just for, on the level of clothes you know if those kind of practical items can be provided there's one less thing that can be kind of dangled as an exploitative sort of temptation to um take advantage of people with um and yeah there's a lot lot um so if you both mentioned a lot happening in Luton in terms of um trying to meet the need for um english language classes that people are often requesting you know there's a lot of different projects that have started in trying to do sort of conversational um projects and more entertainment side of things and just having a space to be in common sort of have a cup of coffee um because like i think Courtney said you know if all you have is that hotel and there is no privacy and you have no money to go and actually access anything that requires spending money when you're there um just having the, the open doors is is really important yeah i i agree um and i think that even you know the the kind of social interaction and open door and welcoming that people need sometimes is so low level in the sense of it's just someone to have one conversation with maybe exchange phone number or something some form of contact and that opens a wide door in terms of asking questions about things oh i was approached by someone about this does this seem right you know just things that you know 
people might fall into that side of exploitation because they don't have someone to question something about or, you know, to to just check and sense check. And I think that's what I find um, when I do my work and I share my number with pretty much everyone. Um, and I get many questions that just, it could be the most random thing, but it's something that now thinking about this and in this conversation, if they didn't have my input or my opinion or my guidance on, oh, actually here we do things like this, or it's like, you know, this is what this means. Um, who knows where that could go? So, yeah, I think it's really important. And we've spoken to people who've been um, sort of in Luton for months and not connected with any service yet. You know, don't know, um, you know, who the charities are, where those open doors are um, and what services are available. And that, I think, just is reflective of the, the quantity of, of people, the, the amount of people that are here. Um, that even when some of these services, some of these open doors uh, and events and things are fully booked that's still not reaching everyone who needs it and I think that the worst part of that is that actually the most vulnerable people who might be really struggling with their mental health really struggling with um you know just being able to get out and, and meet new people they're the people who are probably we're really not reaching um and obviously it's a good thing that we see often a lot of the same few faces who really try to just kind of come out and and help out as much as they can and be involved as much as they can um and that's you know shows huge resilience for for taking that kind of action um but we know there must be so many more who who even struggle to to access what is available um yeah and, and and I think it's it's it, when I was a, a teenager, I did some basic first aid training, and they said if you came across a car accident, um, who would you go to first? And and actually, it's not the person screaming that's always the person that needs the attention first. It's sometimes the quieter ones on the side. And I think there, you know, pe some people will always get their attention, get their voice heard, and they'll fight for it, and they'll get through. Others sometimes more traumatized, more needy, and I think for me that's where my heart goes out. I think there's there's there must be people silently going through so much. Um, I've I've recently um, made contact with some local refugees that we've been helping, um, and and the husband are very capable people. They if they were in the UK society, they would be upper middle class at least. You know, very talented, very educated. But having to start at the bottom rung of the ladder and work up, and and I've sat and chatted to him, and he's shown me the photos on his phone of what they've been through, and I mean bullet holes in cars and things like this, and and actually, you know, and and his focus was on something else, but I could see <laughs> some of the things on the, on, and you just realise the the gravity. But it's not always the people shouting about it, um, you know. The person I'm talk was talking to is more concerned about their wife than anything, but actually I know that I need to take and go for a walk with him, just to give him a chance to get outside of his normal day to day, um, and and so I'm planning that for next week. But 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 actually, there's some of these things where I think it's a silence. It's sometimes those things that where there's deep need for things to come out. Um, and and I, I don't know if you've got any comments on that. We'll probably bring this a bit to a landing point, but just any comments you, you think that might be wise for people listening? Yeah, I think, um, as you described, something as, you know, 
small for us in terms of just going for a walk and being really kind of receptive and uh, understanding of um, those differences that actually when people are reserved and quiet, it might not be that they're just shy by nature. Actually, in this context, they've been through massive trauma and that could be really, you know, eaten away at them in a way that they can't express or seek help. So it's kind of putting that that gesture forward just to be a friend and be kind. Um, and I think, you know, as much as the people that are confident and that do come regularly to events and, you know, are outspoken about things, um, present their case there's still underlying things with them as well this week I was approached by someone that is one of those confident people that does come to me a lot um and and come out to events um and he was really struggling to uh make contact with some solicitors and I said well you know you've had this list since last year I sent it to you and I've asked if you needed help and he said actually I seem like yeah I'm capable of doing these things but I can't sleep. I don't eat. I am at home. I cry and things like that. And it was just a really stark reminder that actually, even if people are confident and seem very capable, um, with the level of trauma and, you know, added trauma from this system, um, that people are going through is really difficult. So if you can, um, you know, get involved with a local organization or charity and just be befriend somebody, um, that there's a lot of value in that. Don't disregard that as something that is massively helpful. I'm so glad you you said that. Um, you know, I was thinking as you you guys have been talking for the last few minutes. You know that we've we've jumped from different angles of how people claiming asylum and, and refugees are spoken about, how they're viewed, the misinformation and misconceptions around it. Um, and when we talk in almost the abstract, so often it can be really easy for for anyone working, um, you know, responding to uh, trying to support people claiming asylum. It it can be really easy to forget the the people side of it, you know, to to just see people as a, a list of sort of adjectives or a list of needs or a list of vulnerabilities, um, you know, but just like I would want people to always view me as a whole person, you know, each and every individual that that we interact with or that we try to support is a, a whole person with, as you said, Nigel, you know, a whole life and history and background of expertise and experience. Um, and that can, you know, that can range in, in so many ways. And as you said, they'd have so much to offer to Luton to um, British society um, with that expertise as well. Um, I think it's just worth mentioning, so Courtney and I, with various hats on, have been working together for a while and um, coordinating some support for asylum seekers. Obviously, at uh, FACES, we deliver safeguarding training, we deliver CSC training, uh, child sexual exploitation training and identity inclusion training, and we're working on a bespoke safeguarding course for people who are working with uh, people claiming asylum and refugees, so doing any kind of response to that. And the course is an advanced safeguarding course. So it'll be looking at real specific vulnerabilities, specific forms of abuse that happen, bringing in the element of how our bias and how our kind of social norms can influence the way that we work and how we can overcome some of those barriers and take into account, you know, a lot of the easily done um, mistakes that, that can happen when you're engaging with such a vulnerable community. And we're really looking forward to being able to offer that out to, you know, lots of um, mm -hmm. charities, churches, mosques, organisations that are responding in some way. So please do get in touch with us. Um, our main email is admin at faces.org.uk. Um, and it'd be really good to, to see how we can line up that support and, and deliver that, um, you know, widely across Luton and surrounding areas um, over the next coming months. Yeah. yeah. 
Thanks. Um, <clears throat> I, I sort of think when I've got someone who's got knowledge and wisdom and experience of things beyond my own, I, 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 I love to pick their brains and try and understand some more. And and I just think probably a tough question. I don't want to put you on the spot too much, Courtney, but I really appreciate you coming. I really appreciate what you've shared. I feel enriched by what you've shared. I feel my knowledge has grown. And and actually, you know, I, I think that's been so helpful. But for you working in this field, there must be some things you wish. I wish the public knew this better or I wish people understood this more. And so sort of like, you know, sort of trying to get a view from your shoulders in a way. Um, how, how, how are there things that you long the public knew more about? And and also, are there some 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 people listening to this who may be um, involved a little bit with refugees? Are there some good charities you know of or other places that you think would be good uh, to point people to faces? I mean, we're we're well up for being contacted. Um, I, I know of a few charities as well, but I just wondered, you know, just from your advice, from your wisdom, because you've studied this stuff, you know this stuff. Um, I'm just wondering, is there something you wish the general public knew more about? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's vital that the public um, have further information and knowledge on this because as a whole, it's difficult to pinpoint one or two specific things. I think I really long for the public to understand what refugeedom is, what, you know, what is a refugee, who is a refugee, because technically from the point that you flee your country the minute you cross a border for any reason of persecution you are a refugee it's not something that is given to you or taken away the biggest difference is each country has different criteria that they use to recognize you as a refugee but you are fact you are a refugee so understanding that would hopefully shift the perspective of well these people are illegal migrants these people are you know economic migrants all of these kind of buzz terms and you know terminology that is used by the media by the government um to kind of distort the fact that people are refugees if you have had to flee your country because of persecution um you're a refugee and it comes down to the fact that you know when you get into a country so when you reach the uk we have our own process for recognizing that and that is the asylum process um but essentially it's just understanding that this process everyone is due and everyone you know should be given the opportunity to do that it's not people exploiting a system you have you know if fairness gives you the chance of um claiming asylum in any state and you should have your your case heard um i'm not really making this point very clearly but i just wish for people to understand that side of things a little bit better so they can they can know that actually people are facing persecution um, and the the biggest thing for me that I see um, that is incorrect is the fact that people say, oh, well, you know, illegal, the legality, you know, the issues of legality about how you come into the country and how this works. And the UK has ratified the 1951 Refugee Convention. I'm not trying to get too technical, um, but that is the legislation that we have agreed to as a country to follow um, 
and you know you know follow the rules and it's clear in there it's absolutely clear that refugees cannot be persecuted for the way they enter a country seeking um safety and that's it you cannot punish because you know people say well they're here illegally but then why is no one in detention no one has actually been arrested you know no one is in prison for the way they've entered the country because it is not illegal um to enter the country by any means if you are seeking um asylum and you're fleeing persecution so that actually probably is the, the strongest point that i want to make um is that actually you can't you know people are not people are not illegal anyway um but further to that the way that you enter a country does not determine um your legality to be here or not yeah i think that's a very good point and and i think um you know it's very difficult to enter anywhere in it was the the terms that are used manage to twist everything around and present a picture but if you just look at it as refugees, it's very clear. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I think that's that we we've hidden things behind language, maybe for various points, but we won't get into the the deeper politics of that. But I think I think um, it's it's just loving people, and I think that's the and and keeping people human in front of our eyes, not dehumanizing government uh, guys who say we're having this hotel or. Or, or the other side of it, actually, there's there's something that needs to be in us as human beings that cares for one another, and um, you know I think that's so important. But thank thank you you both. We'll put some resources up, um, and, and maybe a couple of charities people can get in touch with uh, underneath this podcast. And uh, but thank you both. Thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us and giving us your expertise, your wisdom and and insights it's been very helpful and thanks melissa as well um all the best